So welcome to the first episode of the Health Mastery Show. I am your host, Adam McDonald, and I'm excited to get this started. And if you're somebody who's listening for the first time, which you probably are because this is the first episode, you're probably wondering, what is this going to be about? Why should you give up your time? And the devil, I guess, is in the detail, the Health Mastery Show. But this show isn't specifically or isn't going to be specifically just about health. It's more so a podcast that when I was thinking of well, what isn't in the marketplace or what isn't out there right now that I would like to see, it came from something that I learned from the Tim Ferriss show. And that is, at least if nobody else listens, I know there'll be one listener and that would be me or himself. So I'm just designing this podcast in a way that I would like to listen to. So I'm taking the philosophy of natural bodybuilding or the principles of natural bodybuilding, which I'm a big fan of. I'm a competitive natural bodybuilder. And applying those to other areas of life, so your career, your finances, your life in general, and using those philosophies, the mentality that you build up of discipline, of dedication, of stoicism per se, and applying those to other areas so that you can master those areas of life and be on that path of mastery. So I'm not going to go too much in detail into my backstory or who I am right now because I want to just immediately get in and give you some value. And I will in a future episode, in a couple of episodes, I've built up quite an embankment of episodes already. I will talk about who I am, my story, and what I'm doing or why I'm doing this. But straight away, I just want to get into the first episode. And on this first episode, I have a guest who I've been looking up to for, I would say, at least 10 years. And he's a pioneer or one of the pioneers in the health and fitness evidence-based community, which is pretty niche unless you know, you're already really ingrained in this. And that is Alan Aragon. He's somebody who puts out a lot of lot of great content and has been for many, many years. And in this specific episode, we talk about pre-post-workout and intra-workout nutrition. So peri-workout nutrition for those who want to maximize their body composition, but aren't necessarily professional bodybuilders. So someone who has a job, a career, a family, a, a wife, or a girlfriend, a you know, likes to travel, somebody who's just on that path where they want to improve themselves but aren't necessarily somebody who's getting paid to do bodybuilding they're not professional fitness model they're not a professional bodybuilder and if you're listening to this i would really highly appreciate if you could give some feedback so at least from what i've heard from other podcasts ratings and reviews are pretty important in terms of getting ranking up there so if you're watching this on youtube i'd really appreciate if you left a comment or commented down below if, if you found it enjoyable, if you didn't, what you'd like to see more of, if you're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Spotify, you could leave a review, leave some feedback, because that ultimately does help with the ratings, the reviews, and help me get more and better guests on in the future. So with that being said, let's dive straight into our first episode with Alan Aragon. So Alan, my man, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great Great to talk again. So first, if anybody doesn't know who you are, and probably that isn't many people who are going to be listening, but give a quick introduction into yourself, what you do, and uh, how you got to where you are right now. Okay. Here's the spiel. <laughs> I am a former personal trainer. That was from 2002 to 2000. Uh, wait a minute. I'm mixing up my, my jobs here. 1992 to 2002 is when I did personal training full-time. And then from 2002 to 2012 
is when I was mostly involved with nutritional counseling. And from 2012 until the present day, I've been doing research full-time. So when I say do research, I mean collaborating with other guys who are really the guys who are getting their, uh, getting their hands dirty and um, rounding up the subjects, you know, submitting the uh, proposals to the IRB, um, doing the data collection and stuff. They basically include me in on um, the design process uh, the data interpretation process um, and the writing of the manuscript. And just uh, it's been a real privilege to have been able to collaborate with scientists on um, research projects. And so uh, that's what I'm doing currently. Um, I also do a research review of my own and um, also do occasional speaking gigs. So um, people in the industry know me as one of the pioneers of the evidence-based movement. Um, basically one of the pioneers of, of the movement where we don't just make claims based solely on anecdote or observation, but we also include the scientific literature and almost use that as a cross check of whether our thinking or our observations how they might line up with objective evidence or not. So that's basically me in kind of a nutshell. Yeah. And I, I think you were the first person that introduced me to the idea of a, a research review. I had no idea what that was. So I think, like you said, the pioneer and the, the reason why I really enjoy having you on today and probably one of my favorite guests that I have had on and will have on is because when I stumbled across that research review, because I didn't actually study nutrition as a bachelor's, I was doing business, but I was taking these, um, you know, elective courses where you can do the, like you can do modules that are not in your actual course and nutrition. I did a nutrition one. I'm actually going to study nutrition uh, as a master's starting in September, but this was many years ago. But when I took that extra elective course in nutrition, the only A plus I ever got was in, is, was in nutrition. And I don't know if you know this, but I did my, my kind of project on aspartame and like its effects. I think it was the, the carcinogenic potential effects or the lack thereof uh, for aspartame. And I messaged you on Facebook and you like sent me a lot of links and research papers and stuff. And I get basically just kind of use your words in mine and I got like an A plus the best in the whole class. <laughs> and that, that was purely because that was when I was like 19 years old or something like that. But yeah, I hadn't come across the idea of a research review and because of my background at the time, 18, 19, 20, no idea what a, you know, how to read papers and interpret it properly. So you gave a real kind of layperson's view and, and not talking too in depth. You do, you do go in depth, but not too in depth where the, the average person can't like make any sense of it. So, that's why I used to always frequent your papers. I'm still a member of your research review. I'll put that in the show notes and stuff. Um, but like compared to some other research reviews that are now come out, you still remain, you still, you know, remain that kind of uh, guy who gives practical applications and more, I suppose, like I said, layman's terms of what the research actually says. So it's something that people who aren't like scientific necessarily or have that scientific background can actually you know, get an insight into the actual research instead of being like, what the hell, the p-value and all this kind of stuff. I have no idea what's going on. And they end up just reading crap from 
uh, cherry picking and, and articles. But one of the topics that I really liked or, or really frequented and went back and visited a lot of time was your topics on um, you know, peri-workout nutrition. So pre-post-intro workout nutrition. You did like a multiple series. I think it may have been 2008, 2009. Um, yeah. But you really honed in on those. And like you said, one of the first people to to really go into that and look at the evidence and look at what, what the actual science is saying about peri-workout nutrition. Like what's the truth? What's what's not the truth? So do you want to give a bit of insight or synopsis into you know, what your view is on pre and post work and even potentially intro workout nutrition for somebody who wants to maximize their, you know, muscle building and fat loss. Sure. So it's a good thing that you added that last part where you said for somebody who wants to maximize their muscle building or fat loss, because pre during and post workout nutrition is a different game for, for different goals. So for the specific goal of improving body composition, um, that peri-workout nutrition or the pre, during, post, the timing of those things is a secondary concern to getting what you need to get in in total by the end of the day. And so there are obvious directions you can go with that statement. You can say, oh, well, fine, then I'll just eat all of my entire entire daily targets in one meal at uh, at midnight, <laughs> even if my workout is somewhere at eight am or something like that. And yeah, that's that it's possible for somebody to try to do that and, and but that's that's not going to be optimal. So when I say that the timing of nutrients around pre and during and post the post workout when i say that that's of secondary importance for body composition i'm mainly saying that you've got margins of wiggle room around the training bout that exist for you to have a certain amount of flexibility and freedom in before you start compromising the adaptations to training so my colleagues and i did a randomized controlled trial where we compared immediate pre-exercise protein administration with immediate post-exercise protein administration and we didn't see any differences in effects on body composition um, and that was a resistance training study and then we also did a uh, a fasted cardio study um, fasted versus fed and there were no differences in body composition between the fasted cardio conditions and the fed cardio conditions. And, um, and you know, basically looking at training bouts that lasted roughly an hour. Um, if you are one of those guys on the fringe who has the type of training that approaches or exceeds two hours and it's exhaustive and it has an endurance, a, a pretty prominent endurance element or demand to it, then a case can be made for much more careful timing of, uh, of your fuels. So kind of backing up, backing up. This is, this is a, a huge topic, so I'm going to try to compartmentalize it here. The concern about pre-workout nutrition, it mainly applies to folks who are going to threaten glycogen availability during the training bout. And 
also, if, if there is that threat of, of uh, tapping out glycogen stores combined with a performance demand, then you've got a concern for pre-exercise nutrition. And the pre-exercise nutrition um, is going to be focused on carbohydrate because now you're looking at a performance issue. But back to the improving body composition. If you're training in a fed state, meaning you've had um, a regular or just moderate sized mixed meal, a mixed macro meal, within roughly two hours of starting training, you're still going to be in the fed state for the majority of that training bout. So anytime that you drink or you know, drink a shake or, or have a meal, um, if that meal is, is moderate sized and mixed in the macros, it's going to be circulating in the blood for at least three hours. And in most cases, you're not going to come back down to baseline for another four or five hours, sometimes six hours, as far as the circulating nutrients go. So if you've consumed a, an immediate pre-exercise meal, um, those nutrients are not even going to be peaking in the blood until roughly one to two hours later, depending on the size and the nature of the meal. So you can easily be kind of burping up your pre-workout meal by the end of your training bout. If, it's, if your training bout is just an hour and you started your training bout pretty soon after your pre-exercise meal. So uh, the whole need for intra-workout nutrition and the utility of intra-workout nutrition really kind of depends on what happened pre-exercise in terms of what you ate and when you ate it. Because a lot of the time, if you have a pre-workout meal, it functions by default and by default of the time course of digestion and that, that curve of appearance of nutrients in the blood, your pre-workout meal is going to be your intra-workout meal because it's still seeping into circulation throughout the whole damn workout. Uh, so um, intra-workout nutrition ends up being something that's very specialized for guys who, number one, don't have much opportunity to eat pre-workout. Let's say you train early in the morning um, and you, you don't like to eat some, some sort of breakfast or some sort of pre-workout meal and, and, or you have a minimal amount of time between waking and training and combine that with your training bout being very, very long, voluminous, exhaustive. Uh, in that case, well, then an intra-workout type of shake might, might benefit you because you've got certain, you're in a certain state where you're not optimally hydrated for one, uh, and you're in a, a certain state where liver glycogen is down from the overnight sleeping cycle, the overnight fast. And if you are going to exhaust your reserves during training, then it can help to have those fuels available. So you can paint scenarios where intra-workout nutrition will benefit. But you can also paint scenarios of the guy who, let's say he had a, a nice big lunch at noon. Uh, or, or for, oh, okay, let's say he had a nice big lunch at noon. He's still at work. And then he's got a break at uh, 3 o'clock. At 3 o'clock, he, he has a snack. He has a protein-rich snack. And he's pretty well loaded up with fuel substrates by the time he gets off of work and starts training at, like, let's say, 530 um, and let's say he only has his training bout lasts like 60 minutes or, or 45 to 60 minutes, like a typical dad 
dad workout, right? Intra workout nutrition for that guy would just be extra calories in, in a lot of cases. So whereas for other guys, intra workout nutrition is an opportunity to get calories in. It's an opportunity to hydrate. It's also an opportunity to uh, get sort of mentally in the game um, with certain factors potentially acting um, centrally to elevate performance potential during the training bout. So there's a, a few different animals that we need to talk about when we discuss the utility of intra-workout nutrition. Uh, the other element of intra-workout nutrition are the details, you know, the grams of carbohydrate or the grams of protein and, and all that stuff. Um, so that's pre and intra. Um, and just sort of brief overview, and you can ask me whatever question you want after, after I'm done with the, the initial ramble. Um, so post-exercise nutrition, um, just sort of speaking to those in the audience who might be, or might have been exposed to the anabolic window concept. Uh, this was brought forth in 2003 or 2004 by John Ivey and Robert Portman, and they proposed that you have roughly an hour or less uh, to consume very quickly absorbed or highly glycemic carbohydrate and very fast proteins um, post-workout in order to kickstart recovery and in order to optimize growth. And if you miss this window of opportunity, then you supposedly compromise your gains. So that is the kind of the theory, the hypothesis behind the post-exercise anabolic window. But once again, it, it, all, it all goes back to the question of what happened pre-exercise. If you keep in mind that whatever you eat, whatever meal that you have is going to, its nutrient levels are going to peak in the blood at somewhere between one and two hours, um, depending on the size and the nature of the meal. And then those fuel substrates and, and those nutrients are going to be circulating in the blood and then they're going to come back down to baseline literally like three to six hours after you've ingested the meal. When you keep that in mind, then you, you, have, to, you have to ask yourself, okay, okay this, this supposed post-exercise anabolic window, who does it apply to? And under what circumstances would it make itself uh, uh, known or, or useful to take advantage of? And really, that the, the population that it would apply to are people trying to resynthesize or restock glycogen or your stored carbohydrate within a muscle as quickly as possible because you just depleted it through an endurance, an exhaustive endurance type of workout, which typically lasts roughly two hours of moderate to high intensity work that's continuous in order to deplete glycogen in the quads, for example. And then once they're glycogen depleted, you know you've got a different event using those same um, glycogen depleted muscles in the same day within the next few hours or at least, you know, w within eight-ish hours or less, if you're doing another competitive endurance event and you've de depleted glycogen, then your post-exercise window of anabolism is very crucial because you've got to 
pull a certain amount of tactics in order to restock glycogen as quickly as possible. So if we compare that fringe endurance competitive population with who you and I are talking about, Adam, who are guys who want to put on muscle, we're usually training a muscle once in the day. <laughs> there, there's rarely uh, guys, and there are some competitive guys who do a double split where they're training twice a day. And there can be some issues with glycogen depletion in assisting muscles by the time they hit the evening uh, workout. But for most people who train once a day and don't train that same muscle group at least for another two or three days, then the issue of restocking glycogen as quickly as possible is, is, an, is a non-issue actually. So once again, it goes back to what's the goal, who are we talking about, and let's consider the time course of nutrient appearance in the blood, and let's consider who it would be useful for to try to restock glycogen within this anabolic window. And I've been talking about carbohydrate mostly this whole time, but when you look at studies examining the time course of protein digestion and absorption, once again, you're looking at another scenario where you don't just consume a scoop of protein and all of a sudden, five seconds later, you're peaking in the blood with amino acids. That's just not how it works. Um, there have been a, a couple, uh, several studies showing that when you consume protein, and, and there's a specific one, I believe it was by Power and colleagues in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, they looked at the time course of 45 grams of whey. So you can think like two scoops of whey for everybody who does protein powder. And that did not peak, amino acids didn't peak in the blood until somewhere between 45 to 60 minutes after ingestion. So the whole theory behind the anabolic window is to have the amino acids available and the carbohydrate available um, post-workout, maximally post-workout. Well, if you did that immediately pre-workout, they'd be peaking in the blood post-workout. So <laughs> it's not, a question about timing nutrient intake. Uh, if you really want to nitpick, it should be a question about timing nutrient availability in the blood. So um, that's all. I, I, I think uh, I think I've rambled quite a bit. So yeah, go ahead. yeah. I, I probably got like a, a million questions now for, from you, but uh, <laughs> you're, okay. you're trying to destroy the supplement industry now with the with, with the companies who sell those you know, fast acting ways. So just, just on that, does that mean that you like the hydrolyzed whey protein or the isolate whey protein beside the fact that they're potentially like they have less lactose. So somebody's lactose intolerant, they don't really make any sense the way that they're marketed to, that they get into the bloodstream faster. Some people will take like BCAs and then 10 minutes later, they'll take like a hydrolyzed whey protein and then they'll get home and they'll have a meal. And I say some people, that's what I used to do like 10 years ago. <laughs> but um, so do you think that there's no actual utility for that, for that kind of supplement where it's you know, faster acting where you pay like two, three times the price? <laughs> yeah, well, no, there, the short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> the nuanced answer is around the workout and including during workout is an opportunity to feed in quotes, opportunity to feed. And that expression mainly applies to nutrients that you tend to have a hard time 
consuming enough of during the course of the day. So if you're uh, if you're a schmo who has a hard time eating enough protein by the end of the day, then that protein that you had immediately post workout it it contributes to your total, and so that's not a bad thing. Um, but for for somebody to believe that the speed of digestion and absorption of a given protein determines um, its biological uh, benefit, especially towards muscle growth, that's just incorrect. And if anything, the faster a protein is, then the greater chance uh, or the, the more oxidation it can potentially undergo um, compared to a slower protein that might be better put to use uh, towards muscle growth. But that that is sort of a murky area of research with a bunch of equivocal data. So I'm not going to make the claim that faster is worse, but it's not necessarily better. Um, so, and, and there are certain scenarios, like I mentioned, if you train for two hours and you're pounding the crap out of yourself for two hours, uh, and you haven't had a substantial pre-workout meal or much pre-workout stuff at all, and you want to guard, maximally guard against training-induced muscle catabolism or training-induced protein breakdown. In theory, you could potentially use an intra-workout uh, protein or amino acid source and then um, try to head off those... Uh, undue catabolic processes. But still, even that is a very hypothetical theoretical maneuver because there's still data showing that it just it doesn't matter. It doesn't it just doesn't freaking matter whether you have um, amino acids coursing through your blood versus getting them in afterwards um, and, and their those effects on body composition. So we just don't have the data that's looking at things sensitively enough to say that, all right, Joe marathon resistance training workout is going to benefit from intra workout amino acids or protein. We just don't have the data to say that. And uh, of course there's a, a camp of people who really believe in their intra workout nutrition. But the fact of the matter is they're, they're not having just um, amino acids. They're having carbs in there as well. And they're throwing a bunch of other stuff in there as well. And some of those other things may be beneficial, for example, caffeine. Um, and another example, uh, carbohydrate for longer workouts, like I mentioned, approaching or exceeding two hours. And um, towards the end of, of workouts that are resistance training workouts, that, but that begin to more resemble endurance training workouts, then the intra-workout carbohydrate is really, in fact, going to benefit that population, especially if you're not training in a, in a truly fed state. So, so to summarize kind of what you said, what I'm taking from it, and I suppose what I've, I've read on your stuff before and elsewhere, is that you can't say that it's necessary to have intra-workout, post-workout. It all really context dependent on if you've had a pre-workout meal, then intra and post are less important. If you haven't had a pre-workout meal, then intra and post are more important. Right. And then if you haven't had either, then post-workout is probably a good idea. And then when it comes to carbohydrates, getting in carbohydrates as fast as possible after your workout to replenish that glycogen isn't necessary for the 
the guy who just wants to optimize his muscle building. It's more so for people who do like, say, multi-sports. They'll do like double MMA bouts in one day or they may do, um, I suppose you could you could even argue for somebody who is, is trying to optimize their physique but does cardio in the morning for like a hit cardio session and then they're training legs in the evening. Uh, that might be more important for them to get in carbohydrates. But for somebody who, let's say, doesn't do any kind of physical activity, um, draining glycogen or using glycogen from that same muscle group, it's not really that important to squeeze it in as fast as possible uh, post-workout. So would you have then any kind of time frame? I know the research would indicate that the um, you know uptake it would last for uh, or insulin sensitivity would last for up to 24 hours after training that muscle group. And like you said, most people don't train that same muscle group. Some people do, but most don't train that same muscle group with within say two days, three days. Um, mm-hmm. so within, you know, as long as you're not training it within 24 hours and you're getting in that sufficient glycogen in that 24 hours. And I suppose you could, you could look at the black or white and say, what if I get it in the 24th hour, you know, then and all of my carbohydrates. And that's the way I used to look at things. I used to, like you touched on at the beginning, well, what if I just ate all my protein in one meal? I used to hypothesize or ask questions. Well, what if you had six meals a day, but then what if you only ate all your calories in one, one, uh, one day per week, but you hit your total of macros for the week? Would that make any, you know, substantial? And I'm, I'm sure it probably would, but it's yeah. black or white thinking. And, and that's the way a lot of people kind of think where that's not really reality. It's more, you know, we're really talking about kind of nuances here. But mm-hmm. to come back to the, the, the topic of a fasted training. So it, let's say you didn't, let's say you woke up in the morning and, and some guys do prefer to train in the morning um, you know, before they go to work. Maybe it's just a kind of logistical thing and mm-hmm. they, they can't train uh, or they can't eat before they get up because they might wake at six and be at work at nine. So they'll train. Um, do you think that there's going to be any meaningful effect? And I hate to ask this question because it's really hard to quantify, but if yeah. somebody was to train fasted and then not eat until after their workout versus somebody who was to have a shake as soon as they wake up or have that intro workout shake in terms of their actual ability to, to maximize, we're talking about maximizing, you know, muscle building effects here. And like I said, it's really hard to quantify because you, you need a randomized control study of the exact same person. But you know, do you think that it's a bad idea to, to train completely fasted with absolutely nothing in your in your body, like you haven't eaten since the night before, um, and you're not having that intro workout meal, maybe the first meal that you're going to have 30 minutes after you work out or even a shake? And do you think that's something that you would avoid or potentially recommend mm-hmm. that people should avoid? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to tell you um, the, re- the, the research real quick, and then I would tell you what I would personally recommend, you know, so... In 2010, uh, I, I can actually give me a second. Uh, 2010, Del D C Q U E at all. The uh, yeah, the the this is a 2010 study. It's by Del DK and colleagues, and it's called increased P76K during intake of a protein carbohydrate drink following resistance exercise in the fasted state. So with that unwieldy title of this study, basically what they did was they compared resistance training state with a high carbohydrate 
and protein included um, meal. And they compare that with resistance training in a fasted state with that same um, large high carbohydrate mixed meal consumed after resistance training. And what they found was the anabolic response um, to the feeding was, was greater when they, when the training was done in the fast state. And the reason why that's interesting is because it's an example of the body exhibiting what some have called an anabolic rebound to suboptimal, uh, to training in, in a suboptimal state or a fasted state. So because you're training in a fasted state, the body goes, oh, damn, we got to survive here. What's going on? And then um, when you feed afterwards, the body's like, oh, give me all that. You know, we almost just died here. Give me all that. Versus if you train in a fed state, then the anabolic signaling to post-exercise feeding is not as strong. So there's stronger anabolic signal, anabolic signaling when, when training resistance training was done in the fasted state. My interpretation of those findings is that, oh, wow, there, it kind of doesn't matter now because the body is smarter than we give it credit for. But what I would, I wouldn't take those findings and say what some people have. Some people have interpreted those, those findings to say uh, the, the anabolic response to feeding is stronger if you train fasted. So I'm going to train fasted. I wouldn't do that either because once again, there comes the temptation to just wake up after an overnight fast and hit the gym. Um, and you won't necessarily perform as well and you won't necessarily be as well hydrated. You won't necessarily, um, have the substrates at the ready for the, towards the end of the workout. If your workout happens to be high volume and you're, in the, in the beginning stages of depleting glycogen in certain muscle groups towards the end of the workout, um, I, I would always default to it being optimal to train in a fed state, not a fasted state, if we're talking about resistance training, especially resistance training where there is the element of actually trying to get a good workout and trying to do the maximal amount of work within that within the time frame that you've allotted. Um, there are certain workouts that are non-resistance training and just you're just trying to mindlessly burn calories. And in that case, it really honestly doesn't matter when, when the, the fuels are consumed around the training bout. But for resistance training, I would at minimum, at minimum recommend um, pre-exercise or, or at least being in a state of hyperamino acidemia, meaning some kind of pre-workout protein or intra-workout protein if you have no time um, between waking and training. So at, at least a uh, 20 grams of protein for most people, at least uh, prior to the training bout, somewhere, um, within, somewhere within one to two hours pre. I, I wanna mention a meta-analysis that uh, my colleagues and I did, and this was headed by Brad Schoenfeld, who, as you know, uh, pumps out like a, a paper a week. He's been doing so since <laughs> since like 2013. He's been like pumping out a paper a week. Um, and uh, I mentioned before we hit the record button. I'm I'm working on a paper with him, which I'm really excited about. So uh, 
I wouldn't recommend resistance training in a, in a protein fasted state. It's just not necessarily optimal from the standpoint of a uh, larger picture of, of, of muscle anabolism. I, I am a big fan of uh, sandwiching the resistance training bout with, um, with nutrients, with protein um, at minimum, and secondarily with carbohydrate, and d- depending on the nature of, of the training bout. So um, back to the meta-analysis that I did with, with Brad and James Krieger, we looked at all of the studies that compared pre-exercise um, or, or rather compared a protein-timed condition with a non-timed condition. So the protein-timed condition um, involved a maximum of one-hour time lag on either side of the training bout before you uh, administered protein. So a maximum of 60 minutes of, of protein neglect, either pre- uh, and or post-exercise for a protein feeding. And that was the timed condition. The non-timed condition involved a minimum of two hours of protein neglect on, on both sides of, of the training bout. So a minimum of that. And what we found was there was no difference in effects on body composition uh, as long as total protein for the day was optimized at somewhere between 1.6 grams per kilogram well, technically, with our findings of 1.66 uh, grams per kilogram and up, there was there was no difference in effects of protein time. So sandwiching the bout with the protein, protein neglect, there was no difference. And when I say meta-analysis, I mean gathering up several studies and looking at the effects, the so-called effect sizes, and where the weight of the hmm. well uh, of the data leans. Right, so. So we found um, no lean in one direction or another yeah, as long as total protein for the day was, was good. And so the way that we interpret that is you have a, a quite a bit more wiggle room than, than a lot of people give the body credit for in terms of utilizing protein properly for muscle growth uh, around the training bout. Now, we're not saying that you can train in a fed state or in a fasted state rather overnight fasted and then just neglect protein for the next three hours <laughs> and then expect to grow optimally. What, what we're basically saying is that you can finish your workout and drive home and eat your steak and potatoes and drive home in, in traffic even and eat your, your steak and potatoes and your muscles are not going to fall off the bone. Um, and, and so, so yeah, that there's nuances to that. But when you think about, the distribution of protein through the day. So eating your protein meals throughout the day, when you, when you try to optimize that, and this is something that um, Brad and I proposed, is a four protein feedings per day model being optimal. So four or more being optimal and relatively evenly spaced through the day. It doesn't have, you don't have to nitpick and go crazy with it but four protein feedings a day is largely going to negate the need to nitpick over timing around the training block. Cause if you're eating protein four times a day at a substantial amount, um, like roughly half your body weight in kilograms as a minimum protein dose in grams, uh, four times a day, then there's really not going to be a whole lot of lag time between your protein feedings 
and the, the exercise bound. So it, it, once again, it kind of becomes a, a, a non-concern um, for nitpicky timing stuff when, when you start thinking of the big picture of consuming protein. And uh, as a tangent to that, Adam, and by the way, I'm, I'm amazed that you're letting me talk for, for these long, long bouts. I, I'm, I'm typically used to getting interrupted. <laughs> no, just, just keep coming, keep coming. <laughs> um, with regard to that, um, we don't really know what's the minimum amount of protein feedings during the day that would maximize muscle anabolism. We don't, we don't know that. We haven't compared one meal a day versus three meals a day with a resistance training program over time, over a period of weeks, and to see who's got the best gains. And, and ideally, we'd be using uh, resistance trained subjects. Ideally, we'd be using um, athletic subjects, competitive athletic subjects. Let's take bodybuilders, for example, with, with some uh, competitive experience. Put one group, have them eat one, have them eat 150 grams of protein in, in, in one meal. <laughs> and then have the other group spread, spread it out 50 grams per meal three times a day. Carry the study out for eight to 12 weeks and, and, and see what happens. We, we, that'll be a very interesting study, right? Yeah. Imagine if the one, one uh, meal a day group did just as well as the, the three 50 gram protein feedings a day. What would, would be even more interesting? Would yeah, we take a third group and have them eat six times a day. Yeah, so kind of in summary, you're just saying just eat eat like a normal human being. You don't have to do anything <laughs> crazy. Like nobody, I don't know anybody really that just eats one meal a day unless they're they specifically think that one meal per day is something that that helps them. Um, you know, for for whatever reason they've read something or they've seen something online. But to go back to the initial kind of fasted state when we talked about the the hyper anabolism or the, I suppose, super compensation effect for, yes, you know, rebound, anabolic rebound. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The anabolic rebound. I haven't actually read that paper, but what I would, you know, initially think is that the, yes, you will have that super compensation effect because you have deprived your, your body of amino acids um, for a period of 12 hours or eight hours, whatever it may be. But if you look at the summation of the anabolic response from actually having a, although the, although the, you know, if you have a sandwich or workout with pre and post-workout protein, the post-workout effect of, of that protein may not be as, you know, uh, anabol uh, you know, anabolic as if you had trained fasted. But if you look at the total summation of the pre and post um, anabolism from having a meal versus just that post-workout meal and training fasted, you might see that you'll get you know better effects, even though um, because you've sandwiched it either either side, you have the, those amino acids. So maybe that's why you're getting that hyper anabolism um, in the fasted state because you don't have any amino acids, and because you have trained with food in the in the fed state, you're not getting that hyper anabolic response because there's already amino acids in the body. So that's why we're not seeing that super compensation effect so if you looked at it or cherry picked you might see well oh look here's your, it's a lot more anabolic if you train fasted but the only reason you're getting that super compensation effect is because you you haven't eaten before whereas you're not getting such a huge response if you actually ate before because there's amino acids in the in the body yeah yeah it's, that's essentially correct the body is perceiving some kind of threat that it has to overcompensate for mm, so that so that that's super yeah. yeah the super compensation effect like you said probably isn't you know greater than 
having a pre and post workout meal, even though just in that one particular time, it is more, I suppose, anabolic. And if we looked at it in a black and white terms, you could say that, oh, well, if you just eat one protein meal per day and you eat all your protein, it's hyper anabolic. Probably. <laughs> right. Just it probably would be all your protein at the one day at the end of the week. Yeah, start <laughs> exactly. It's super anabolic meal. And then people say, I'm just going to eat anabolic, anabolic as anabolic AF. Yeah. So it's just like, well, that one meal is going to be way more anabolic than any individual meal. If you have four meals a day, but the summation of anabolism is probably going to be maybe a little bit less. So I think yes. that's but the way people, they, they don't really know how to interpret data or, or think outside the box or think even logically, they'll just, they'll just look at something and, and then they'll, they'll go off and say, well, let the fastest training is now more anabolic. So let's do that. And that's where you get all these kind of spinoffs and gurus who, you know, have a certain kind of way. Of, uh, well, it's been, it's been that way for the longest time with the anabolic window and with, with intra-workout nutrition, both, both, uh, obsessions completely forgot about the pre-workout meal. They completely forgot about the question of, are we training in the fed state or are we training in the fasted state? And they also completely forgot about the, the actual goal and, and, and the nature of the training bout. When you take all those things into consideration, you really don't have a black and white answer for anything. You have to say, okay, well, if the training is like this, then we might want to fuel it like this. If the pre-workout nutrition exists, then we might want to fuel things like this, or if it's fasted, we feel it like this. So it becomes this whole, it depends type of uh, question. There's, there's yeah. only a black and white answer because there's many different possibilities. It's almost like saying, um, gosh, you know, should you, uh, do, do you need to, um, walk to walk or do you need to run? I don't know. Well, let's think about the yeah, yeah. surrounding factors here. <laughs> yeah. It, it's all situational. Um, mm -hmm. So let's say in an ideal scenario, when you do have a, a pre and a post-workout sandwich meal, just like I said, eating like a normal human being like they do. And yes. um, does that make the idea of consuming any kind of free form amino acids, whether just an amino acid supplement or branch chain amino acids, are they pretty much then redundant if you have that meal, um, you know, within an hour, let's say, or even two hours, like your research showed and pre, pre and post does do amino acids like in the free form essential amino acids or branching, do they basically become useless then? Yeah. Uh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Um, it, there's even research showing a uh, hundred mile bike race. I, I believe it was uh, where even if you took EAAs or, or BCAAs during that, that intra-workout intra with, with a, a ultra ultra endurance event, um, it didn't necessarily lower uh, protein breakdown. Um, but that could have been an anomalous finding. Who knows? Maybe there's there's ways that people train that would would threaten uh, uh, muscle protein balance in a, in, in a bad way um, without their you know training in a fasted state. Maybe that that's possible. But um, per your question, per your specific question. If somebody is consuming, for example, two point, somewhere between two to three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, and just as a matter of habit, a matter of routine, it doesn't matter where you place those extra uh, amino acid supplements. It, it doesn't matter. It's just not going to go to muscle anabolism because you already have an abundance and you already have your requirements covered 
from the pre-existent protein intake. So beyond a certain point, it, it, any sort of EAA supplementation, BCAA supplementation, leucine supplementation, uh, it's not going to be of any help. Um, there are scenarios that you can paint where somebody is a vegan, for example, and they are not on the same playing field as far as essential amino acid intake. They're not on the month. same. They're not on the same playing field. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, it's so funny, bro. Um, I did a I did an Instagram live video or live QA. Did this yesterday, and one of the questions somebody asked was. Why do vegans exist? <laughs> I didn't get around to answering that question, but it would have had some fun. Uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm, all, I'm all for the ethical reasons, but uh, I, I just couldn't do it in terms of, uh, I just love meat and meat products and, and I, I just love the taste of it. And I don't think that the health benefits of eating a, a moderately meat-rich diet are are, are worse. I mean, are, I mean, there's any health de detrimental health effects. I mean, I mean pretty, pretty inconclusive. Um, but uh, yeah, but I mean, for the ethical reasons, that's fine. But like, you know, mm -hmm. I just don't like me too much. Um, but to come back to the topic of, the, 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 the <laughs> of yeah, I, I, I respect vegans for having taking a strong ideological stance on that, and I think yeah. that that's legit when they do that for that reason. But when the claims are made made about when health claims are being made and, and inferiority of omnivorous diets and stuff down a, a slippery slope there but I, I definitely can respect certain people's reasons for avoiding animal products i can respect it mm. so so with regards then to um i suppose if essentially amino acids or branching amino acids aren't going to have any you know, additional effects or more anabolic effects than just having a protein meal. Does that mean that certain types of protein are, you know, redundant or are there different types of quality of protein that could potentially affect it? Let's say you're only having collagen protein. I don't know anybody that just has collagen protein, but like you said, I suppose it would come back to vegans. You said in certain situations, you're probably going to come on to that versus like a whey protein, which is more bioavailable versus some other types of protein like beans or legumes or something like that yeah it, it kind of does come back to the whole uh, plant protein versus animal protein thing um and, and yeah you you need to be a, a bit more well planned if you were avoiding animal products but if not then there's really no concern if you're getting the majority of your protein from animal products and you're not specifically just having um like taking down some collagen protein for example which is devoid of tryptophan <clears throat> and not necessarily um high in the essential amino acids then uh then yeah you, the concerns of supplementing with amino acids are just completely out the window it, it's a waste of, uh, of time and money and resources but somebody who is a vegan may benefit from just getting potentially if they're eating uh you know, plants whatever, whatever they eat before they work out whatever vegans like to eat for the protein um it would be a good idea to get some potentially vegan-friendly BCAs or essential amino acids. Sure, I, I would do a, a full-spectrum essential amino acid supplement uh, because if when people do just BCAAs, adding BCAAs to 
um, a vegan diet plan, then there's still a aside from the BCAAs that, that can be limiting and that are that are lacking uh, in the diet. So you, if you get a full spectrum EAA, then you're good. Mm. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, we don't like vegans. Um, but so when it comes to, um, we talked a lot about protein and, and it's pretty, pretty clear now, I guess, about protein timing um, for your maximal anabolism and muscle, and muscle breakdown. But when it comes to then carbohydrates, we talked a little bit about getting in um, you know, the, uh, the timing of carbohydrates post-workout. But the, the big thing that a lot of people look at besides just glycogen restoration is insulin and the anabolic effects of insulin. I know it's way overstated and people, it's almost like a permissive effect where we have this physiological, um, you, know, do, uh, you know, amount of insulin that we release in our body in response to even protein itself. But then people will look at like bodybuilders who inject super physiological doses of insulin, which to be honest, I don't really understand the mechanisms in those doses of how that's anabolic or anti-catabolic. Um, but people will think that they'll draw a, you know, a straight line from this is the amount that I get from eating 30 grams of carbohydrates and here's what you know, Ronnie Coleman injects. So if I can try and get closer to that, I'm going to be more anabolic. Can you explain a little bit about you know, insulin's response or insulin's role in the, the post-workout nutrition and, and building muscle or, break, or you know, minimizing um, catabolism? Yeah, that, that is a, it's definitely a, a, an esoteric type of concept. And just to kind of see if I, you're, you know what, you're much better at simplifying things than I am. <laughs> I'm like, so the, the theory there is insulin being in, in quotes an anabolic hormone. Uh, the theory is if you can spike insulin during the post-exercise period, uh, and and you're already making the assumption that there's kind of this magic post-exercise window of opportunity. If you spike insulin during that period, then you can maximize um, the supposed uh, uptake of nutrients uh, into the muscle, and then and then augment and optimize growth and, and recovery Coleman, yeah. and growth. Yeah, you can become Ronnie Coleman. And so the theory there was you need to consume highly insulinogenic foods post-exercise to jack up your insulin as much as possible. But the reason why that, that is false is because, number one, you're, if you had a pre-exercise meal, your insulin is going to be up for another two, three hours, four hours. Um, and number two, if you had uh, um, let's let's imagine once again, if you train fasted, you're going to get this anabolic rebound post exercise anyway. So, um, and number three, the and maybe most importantly, uh, there is a limit to how anabolic insulin elevations can be within physiological limits. So. Uh, we're speaking completely separately from injecting insulin and raising it a thousand times uh, normal normal levels. We're talking about um, insulin elevations as a result of consuming protein and or carbohydrate. So those levels, what the Greenhalf and colleagues, I believe it was 2008 and then he did it again in 2000, uh, 2013-ish or something like that. 
2014. They took a look at insulin elevations that max out uh, muscle protein synthesis. And the levels of insulin elevation that max out muscle protein synthesis are relatively low and are really only about three times more than fasting levels. And that can be achieved with just very small meals, uh, very small to moderate amounts of protein um, or carb and or carbohydrate max out the amount of insulin required to um, optimize the short-term anabolic response or muscle protein synthesis. So what they found was even without, even in the absence of carbohydrate, you can consume 20, 20 grams of protein or more, and that'll raise insulin to the maximal levels required to max out muscle protein synthesis. Um, that's kind of another rabbit hole to, to go down, but it, it only because they found that about double that amount of protein maximizes MPS in older individuals and also individuals engaged in higher volume resistance training. So that, that's kind of an aside, but back to the insulin thing, you mentioned that ins, insulin elevations were more of a permissive type of thing rather than a stimulatory thing for acute measures of muscle growth. And so therefore, the whole idea that you need to crank up insulin as high as possible for muscle growth, that doesn't apply to eating food. It only applies to injecting it. Uh, and, and there is some sort of divide there between whether insulin, um, wh whether insulin at pharmacological levels is how, wh why it's anabolic at, at extreme superphysiological levels versus what you can achieve with food intake. But since we're talking about food intake, the anabolic effect of insulin elevations max out at pretty low levels. You can just have, have a little bit of protein and max that, that insulin level out. It was found to be, oh, what, what, what's the figure on that? 15 milliunits per liter. Um, and then fasting levels are about five, five, um, five to 10. If, you, if you're hitting 10 with fasting insulin, then you're kind of insulin resistant. But um, either way, it's very easy to achieve. And it's kind of, it's a non-issue. It's one of those forest for the trees thing. If you're a natural lifter and your goal is to, to, to grow as quickly as possible, focusing on things like insulin, you're kind of missing the point. What you want to mainly focus on is, are you getting enough protein? Are you getting enough calories? And uh, this is by the end of the day. And is your training progressing? Um, hormonal concerns are just, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. Well, so, so to start to build a case here, I guess, um, even if your goal is to, let's say, maximize um, you know, muscle, and you're not training that muscle within two days, three days, you don't even need to have any carbohydrates whatsoever post-workout because, well, we're maximizing the, the anti-catabolic effects of insulin just by having protein. We don't need to restore that glycogen immediately. So it's not that you want to actively avoid it where some people will say, well, you have a greater growth hormone response. Like, um, you know, that's another rabbit hole. Um, but you can actually maximize all the anabolic effects and anti-catabolic effects by just simply having protein by itself post-workout, enough protein. That's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that, that's a good question, the, the whole idea of whether you should have carbohydrate 
with your protein post-exercise or in order to maximize muscle growth or whether you're compromising muscle growth by leaving out the carbohydrate. And that does relate back to the whole insulin thing, right? Because insulin um, would help anabolism by preventing catabolism in, in theory, at least. So there have been <clears throat> three to four short-term experiments comparing protein only post-exercise uh, versus carbohydrate and protein post-exercise. So there was an anabolic benefit of doing protein and carbohydrate in studies that used low amounts of protein. So I'm talking like 10 grams of protein-ish on average. And then you add carbohydrate to it and the muscle protein synthesis increases compared to just that 10, 10 grams of protein by itself. Okay. Sometimes they used uh, uh, isolated or free-form amino acids that they would add carbohydrate to, but we're talking like six grams of essential amino acids mm. versus grams of EAAs plus carbohydrate. And that combo pack jacked up muscle protein synthesis higher, it jacked up insulin higher. So people said, oh, aha, we gotta, we gotta spike our insulin as much as possible post-exercise with, with carbohydrate and, and protein. But what started happening when they look at higher doses of protein, like 20, 20 grams or more, 20, 25 grams of protein um, and, and up, there was no difference in the short-term anabolic response or in muscle protein synthesis between the protein alone versus protein plus carbohydrate. I believe one of the studies actually looked at um, net muscle protein balance. So no difference between protein alone versus protein and carbohydrate, as long as the protein dose itself was high enough, meaning 20, 25 grams or higher. And then there was no additional benefit to muscle anabolism, or at least the short-term anabolic effect, mm. to adding carbohydrate with the protein, co-ingested with the protein. So there's a series of, there, like I said, there's at least four short-term studies that have showed this, looking at muscle protein gains. But the question always kind of remained, all right, so it appears appears in the short term that if you get enough protein in a single meal, additional carbohydrate is not going to augment the anabolic response. But what do you do in a, a longitudinal scenario where you carry out a study for a series of weeks? What happens when we measure strength gains and size gains, changes in body composition? We don't have that data. Well, we didn't have that data until recently when Hulmi, H-U-L-M-I, Juha, his first name is Juha, J-U-H-A, last name is Hulmi, H-U-L-M-I. He's from Finland, he's from Finland, man. Those guys are wild with their, with their names, Finland. Um, <clears throat> he did a study where he looked at that exact question. So he used a substantial amount of protein, it was 37-ish grams of protein or so, a substantial amount of carbohydrate versus um, that protein by itself post-exercise. And then they ran the study for a number of weeks, put the subjects through a resistance training protocol, and lo and behold, no, no advantage to um, adding the carbohydrate with the protein uh, post-exercise. And so that study actually corroborated the findings of the short-term studies that found no short-term anabolic difference in muscle protein synthesis with protein by itself at a high enough dose 
versus that same dose of protein with carbohydrate. So we have at more than a glimmer, more than a hint that you can, let's take somebody, for example, who has a carbohydrate, daily carbohydrate target of, let's say a, a low amount, like, like uh, let's say, let's, let's say a hundred grams. Okay. So they're consuming a hundred grams of carbohydrate a day. Let's say they, they do their weight training session in the morning. They don't have to grab from their carb allotment and shove it with the protein post-exercise if they would prefer having a high carbohydrate meal at dinner and let's say a moderate carb meal at lunch. They're not compromising their gains as long as their protein intake is, is and calorie intake is, is proper by the end of the day. You don't have to shift those carbohydrates near the train rack. And let's even take a, a, another scenario where somebody is, is consuming very low carbohydrate amounts. Let's imagine somebody's got um, a goal of 50 grams of carbohydrates a day where it really kind of matters when you take that in because you don't necessarily want to squander it on, um, on a given meal, right? So the person taking in 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, let's say he's a keto guy, he, and he trains in the morning but he loves having um let's say some fruit at at lunch and and, and potatoes at, at the dinner and that maxes out his, his 50 grams of carbohydrate and he doesn't want to have fruit in the morning or potatoes in the morning or during the day at all and let, let's imagine this guy wants to have most of his carbohydrates in a single meal of the day later on in the day and he's resistance training in the morning it won't make a difference whether he takes those potatoes and shoves them post-exercise versus him eating those potatoes for dinner and having just protein around his uh, his morning training route. It won't make a difference per the data that we have available. And yeah. when I say per the data, we, we have a convergence of short-term, very tightly controlled stuff on muscle protein synthesis. And then we have longer-term, more loosely controlled stuff looking at a bit more concrete endpoints being um, strength and, and size. Yeah, so. it's it's kind of like the, I'm actually following a very similar approach right now. I am eating like quite low calories, just being in a extended dieting prep phase, and I just if I can't if I don't eat enough food before bed, I can't sleep. So um, even though I might train in the evening, I might only eat protein after I work out, and then I'll have carbohydrates um, and maybe some more protein before bed, so that I can actually adhere to the diet and stick to it rather than being starving, going to bed and not getting enough sleep or proper sleep. And then you, know, you start to get into other issues that can affect muscle building rather than actually being so precise and like missing the forest for the trees and, and trying to get in, you know, carbohydrates um, post-workout. But I think that people who are so nuanced in this thing anyway, that are really particular, if you think of from a psychological aspect of a guy who is trying to do everything he can and he's, he's, you know, trying to place certain meals or certain carbohydrates or, or certain macronutrients, he's not going to be one that skips on carbohydrates post-workout anyway, or, or, and just only has protein. You know, he's not, that's, you know, if you think of it from a, a psychological aspect, I don't know anybody who, who actually purposely does that, but mm -hmm. for the people who, for whatever reason, may not be able to um, have carbohydrates post-workout for, for whatever reason, maybe you only have a, um, you know, protein powder and that's it. And you can just carry it in a Ziploc bag. You're still going to maximize those um, anabolic effects as long as you eat carbohydrates 
at some point in the next two hours at least. At least that's what the data shows. And, and I presume, and we don't have the data, but I, I assume that that the further that window goes, probably you know four hours, six hours, eight hours, either side of the training, you probably will start to see some less favorable effects. Now, to the extent of what they will have an effect, if overall calories and macronutrients are uh, equated for for the day, probably not that much, but it probably does get more precise. And that leads me on to the question then is, we know that you know insulin sensitivity is maximized or is you know is is high 24 hours up to 24 hours after training a specific muscle group do you think that it might be um a good idea to actually try and have more carbohydrates closer to your workout because i guess just thinking from a from a practical point that the insulin sensitivity will obviously reduce until it's you know back to baseline and um, mm-hmm. so it will be potentially higher closer to the workout rather than saying well it's just as high 15 hours after training your biceps uh, versus 30 minutes after. So would it make sense that your insulin sensitivity may be 10% higher? Um, or is that still something that isn't really, you know, shown to, to be, be the case? Yeah. Yeah. It would apply to speed of, of glycogen resynthesis more than it would apply to, amount of glycogen resynthesis. So if you're thinking from a nutrient partitioning standpoint, it still gets partitioned where it's going to be partitioned. There's, there's going to be negligible to, to no difference um, in there. It's just the speed of which it gets partitioned that would be affected. So whereas you, whereas one guy has his carbohydrates immediately post-exercise, he'll have his glycogen reserves full sooner than the guy who waits but the guy who does it sooner is not going to have more glycogen um resynthesized while the guy who waits gets stuff gets a certain amount of it uh deposited in the fat stores and some of the you know in the glycogen stores it, it doesn't work like that it, it would be a speed of of uh, resynthesis concern so the guy who gets his his carbohydrate in faster post-exercise, he might be benefiting himself if he's got another training bout later on in the day where he encounters some fueling requirements for those same muscles. But unless we've got that scenario, you're really looking at a time course of glycogen restocking, not an amount of glycogen restocking versus partitioning into fat. Mm. So um, especially in high hypocaloric conditions it's it's just not going to have any impact yeah um we could we could paint some uh, uh theoretical scenarios in in caloric surpluses but even then you, you would really have to reach for what would be the mechanism for for somebody to partition more towards fat uh instead of uh towards glycogen um if they delayed their intake because there would be more fat oxidation during the delay anyway you know, so it would, it would all even out. So, um, I understand the reasoning of insulin sensitivity being high, GLUT4 translocation being high and uh, the closer to the workout, but it still would come down to a rate of restocking rather than amount of restocking. Yep. And, and obviously then that won't make a difference, obviously, unless you're training that same muscle group again. So we don't need to worry about that, that kind of, uh, you know, speed, 
um, un unless you are doing like multiple bouts of training in the same the same muscle group. And, and that does lead me on to another segue, which I actually read up initially, I think, in your research review, was that people, particularly bodybuilders, will they'll get a bit of knowledge on you know fructose metabolism, and they'll they'll read that fructose is mainly stored in the liver. Um, it increases liver glycogen. So we need to avoid fruit and I don't want to eat fruit post-workout because it's not going to replenish my muscle glycogen. But one of the, the papers that you reviewed, I think in your, in, I think it was recent enough, was looking at only eating fructose. And we know that fruit doesn't only contain fructose, actually fructose and glucose, but mm -hmm. even only consuming fructose, which nobody in the right mind would do, um, unless you're just drinking two little bottles of Coke post-workout, then and that's actually not even, that's like 50% fructose, 55. Yeah, but that you still, after 24 hours, have the same amount of glycogen replenishment as glucose only. So what I took from that was me being in a hypocaloric uh, diet at the moment, so in a calorie deficit, I'm not getting to eat as much nutrient-dense food as I often would like. Um, so I can't just have my post-workout waxy maize starch, not that I ever take that, but or, or, you know, less nutrient rich foods like rice or something like that. So I actually try and actively have fruit post-workout. Whereas in the past, when I'm reading your flex magazine or your muscular development or Mr. Olympias, who I used to look up to in terms of the nutritional advice, they would be saying, you know, you have to eat this carb post-workout because you're going to replenish glycogen. You have to have dextrose. You can't have fructose. But if you want to optimize your health, and especially if you're in a dieting phase where you're not getting as much opportunity to get in as much fruit variety you're better off eating fruits post-workout to, to get that kind of double-edged sword yes absolutely especially if you are in a like your scenario that you described where you're not depleting glycogen in in a given muscle group and needing to compete with those same depleted muscles a few hours later yep especially if you're talking about that scenario you are, it doesn't make sense to, to consume suboptimal carbohydrate sources or, or, or micronutrient uh, sparks and sometimes to avoid carbohydrate sources when you have the opportunity to consume um, healthier foods for, you know, for, for whatever, whatever stint of time that you're, you're engaging. And so um, that whole no fruit post-exercise thing because fructose, that, it, that definitely is a silly thing. Uh, and even in the literature, they, they've compared glucose versus what would look like fruit sugar, which, is, which would be um, a combination of fru fructose and glucose, so sucrose being a 50-50 split. So the rate of glycogen replenishment between those two is negligible. Um, and like you mentioned, for somebody to – a lot of people are under this impression that fruits just contain – fructose but <laughs> the, most of them are 50 50 split of glucose and, and fructose and, and like i said in the literature when you compare rates of glycogen resynthesis between glucose and then that combination sucrose which is 50 50 split of fructose and, and glucose negligible um rate of uh, difference in the rate of glycogen restocking over a just sort of the, the postprandial period and once again that's not even really a concern for for uh, for bodybuilding goals, um, <clears throat> you yeah, can think so of scenarios. If you're like if you're, like, uh, if you're an MMA fighter, like I, I touched on before, or if you're mm -hmm. doing 
if you're doing sprints in the morning and training legs in the evening, maybe you might be a good idea to have additional carbohydrates that aren't sure. uh, fructose. But but even then, you know, if you're consuming enough carbohydrates, even if you do consume fruit, it's probably not a you know a, a, a terrible idea anyway. Unless you're consuming mm. a ton of fiber, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference because it is like fifty. You know, it, how much fructose depending on the type of fruit you're eating but you know would that even make a difference if you if you were training that muscle group twice in one day if you had fruit because it contains glucose and fruit fructose probably doesn't right really now I and mean, you still have a, you know, as far as fructose goes you still have liver glycogen to replenish and, and that can fructose has a more has a more direct effect on replenishing uh, liver glycogen but that's only about 25 percent of your total glycogen reserve anyway so you know, the people can nitpick and say, okay, we'll have a two to one or a three to one ratio of, of glucose to fructose uh, for optimal glycogen depot replenishment and stuff. But even even that gets a little bit silly uh, depending on the, the sporting population. And if you really, really strapped for time to replenish muscle glycogen, then you would use something like Vitargo where you would get a much quicker um, restocking of muscle glycogen than you would with any kind of conventional carb, even straight uh, glucose. It's the most expensive carbohydrate on the planet. On the planet, yes, on the planet. I, I remember um, when I didn't have a job and I was in like um, like secondary school, college, high school, like any money that I would get, I would buy a new supplement. And I think I spent like once like 60 euros on like one kilogram of Vitargo, like so stupid, but you know, you live and learn. You know? I was like, an, yeah. I wouldn't even spend that money on it now, even if I was an endurance athlete or a multidisciplinary sport athlete training multiple times a day, I still wouldn't buy it. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about Vitargo, I've heard, um, I've heard some, some positive feedback about using it for carving up uh, during bodybuilding competition. So when, when people are, are depleted and they want to um, carve up as quickly as possible with as little time of uh, transit, from uh, mouth to muscle, some minimal time in the gut bloating you out, then Vitargo has, I've, I've heard some good feedback about mm-hmm. Vitargo for, for that purpose. Yeah. To, be, to be honest, like I've been dieting for so long that when I carb up, I want to eat all my food. I don't want to drink anything, you know? Yeah, um, I, I can imagine. I, I really want to just eat, eat food, especially when I do like refeed days, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. you know, the last thing I want to do is drink. I don't even have like milk where it's coconut milk or anything that's calorie form liquid because I just want to make sure that everything fills me up so I can kind of uh, have my one day of heaven in a, in a dieting phase. I'm amazed that you're able to even string sentences together being two weeks out. So kudos. Yeah. To well, I'll see <laughs> for people listening. We were supposed to start this call like 30 minutes earlier. So I took a pre-workout. So, ah. <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm actually going off false energy at the moment. So like, in okay, minutes, I'm going to crash. And, that's, uh, that's pretty good energy. Yeah. Though. Then my knee, yeah, my knee will be, uh, will be pretty low, but I've been living off actually, uh, jelly, like sugar-free jello. Um, yeah. like I've been eating, if you look at the packet, it says, uh, four servings per pack and I eat two packs. So I'm eating in one sitting 16 servings. So yeah, I'm getting like 30 grams of protein from jello per day jello yeah nice nice, nice and then source people are gonna say you're you're, you're really gonna die after this prep because well, you 
Yeah. You're using artificial sweeteners, man. Your your gut microbiome is gonna turn into gremlins and then and then turn against you and kill you. Yeah. Either that or cancer or both. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Both. Both. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, we touched we touched a lot on uh, protein and carbohydrates, and I think we pretty much summed them up, but we didn't really touch talk a lot about fat. Now mm-hmm. people try and avoid fat, but it seems like what I can already take from it is that it doesn't really make a difference once you have like kind of a mixed meal. They're not going to make a huge difference um, other than like digestive issues. If you eat a ton of peanut butter before you train, anecdotally, I don't feel like that's the best idea. Um, but things like fats pre and post workout, again, people would talk about that slowing down digestion. But like you mentioned, the research showed that you've done that, you know, even two hours of not eating pre and post exercise aren't going to have any detrimental effects. So any kind of slowing down of digestion isn't really going to going to have it. So before you even, you know, give your opinion, I would say that the only reason you wouldn't have fats pre-workout is if it's going to cause you some digestive or, you know, digestive issues during your training or going to make you feel uncomfortable. Like if you're having a big leg day, don't eat, you know, half a jar of peanut butter. Yes, that, that's exactly it, man. The, the main issue with fat in your training is how they might hold the contents in your gut. Uh, it, it might slow the, the emptying of those contents and it might be uncomfortable to train on. And for some people that might impact performance. Um, that would be the only issue, just like with, uh, <clears throat> with studies looking at endurance performance where they do a preload of medium chain triglycerides. The, the big issue with, with that is, is just gastrointestinal distress uh, during exercise. And a similar scenario can potentially occur with resistance exercise if you do like load up with fat before the training bout. But um, the, uh, the post-exercise period, the supposed almighty anabolic window that, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't exist really, um, and slowing down absorption post-exercise it looks it looks like potentially a suboptimal thing on paper, but there is actually research showing um, that this doesn't matter either. Uh, they, a specific study comes to mind where they looked at post-exercise milk consumption on the anabolic response. I believe it was muscle protein synthesis that they were looking at, and they compared whole milk with skim milk, and surprisingly the whole milk had a stronger muscle protein synthetic response than the skim milk and uh, why oh they just they don't know but it did did you have <laughs> so, any kind of thoughts on why it would because there's extra calories there or or do you have any idea is it anything to do with um you know just having the actual fats themselves saturated fats or or maybe the cows are pumped full of hormones. And, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. And it, what, it, what makes it even more complicated is that they, I believe they made the, the doses isocaloric. So there was actually less protein in the whole milk treatment versus the skim milk treatment. And so my guess is maybe there's a little bit of magic to the milk fat. Milk fat magic. MFM. You know, and that's why you get all the guys in the gym who just you can tell the new guys in the gym because it just smells like flatulence because they were told that they got to put their protein powder in milk and just and they can't digest it. And that's the, the little things that like get on my nerves. The the leaner I get, 
um, are, are little nuances like that where I'm training and like you can tell there's a new guy in the gym because it just stinks. And, uh, <laughs> or, the, or, or the guy who, <laughs> yeah, it just smells like, you know, crap. It just, somebody's obviously can't handle milk and they decided that I'm going to go to the gym. So I'm going to start, uh, you know, drinking two liters of milk a day. And uh, yeah, it doesn't sit well with them. Or the guy who thinks that the anabolic window is extremely important, but maybe doesn't have whey protein, so he's chowing down tuna in the can in the lockers in the changing oh, room. Yeah. I hate that as well. It just because <laughs> I hate tuna. It just stinks after a workout. You just smell fish in the changing rooms. Nothing worse. <laughs> but yeah, I guess they're they're first world problems. Um, but yeah. So if, if I was to come to you and I was to say and a, a synopsis of everything we talked about and say, Alan, I'm, you know, I will do whatever it takes to build as much muscle as possible. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm, you know, training naturally. I, you know, want to just maximize any possible cover yeah. off any variables. Uh, tell me what to do pre post work at intra and I'll do it. Okay. Other than drinking milk and eating tuna in the lockers. Yeah. In the locker room, yeah. <laughs> okay, so there'd kind of be a hierarchy of, of importance here. So the uh, first importance, make sure you're hitting your totals for the calories, macronutrients uh, within the day, by the end of the day. So make sure you're doing that. Well, do if it. you've done that, you've covered the majority of what you need to do. Uh, the second part would be uh, protein distribution, you could potentially maximize muscle protein gains by distributing your daily protein intake over four feedings or more. A case can be made for three feedings, but we're going hypothetical here and say, you're, let's imagine you're consuming two to three grams per kilogram of body weight um, in terms of your protein intake. And so divide that relatively evenly across four feedings. Okay, so um, uh, that would be second in line. Once you're doing that, yeah, I mean, if you do those two things right there, totals by the end of the day, and then distribute your protein over, over four, four relatively even feedings over the course of the day, then you've done like freaking 80% of, of what you need to do. And then the, 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 Third tier or, or least important nuance would be the peri workout window. Okay, so the peri workout window would be the time frame between your pre exercise meal and your post exercise meal. Okay, so that, that's your peri workout window. Your workout is going to exist somewhere in between that. So you don't want your peri workout window, and what we're going to that each meal is protein rich. You don't want that window to stretch far beyond about five-ish hours. So your peri-workout window is going to be three to five hours, depending on on the size of the really the size of the pre-workout meal and when you train when you train and how long your training bout is. It'll be three to five hours. So you want to max out that peri-workout window at about five-ish hours. Then that way you give yourself roughly a maximum of like one to two hours lag time between the pre um, or the, uh, the post-exercise meal versus the, the workout itself, if that makes sense. If that makes sense. So, so you have a maximal gap between pre-exercise and training of one to two hours and a maximal gap of uh, post-exercise or the end of the training bout in your post-exercise meal. That gap is maximally going to be one to two hours. And so 
overall your peri exercise period to try not to stretch it beyond five hours. Uh, that way you're maximizing um, the theoretical uh, benefits of, of, of peri workout nutrition being hyper amino acidemia, fuel availability, um, and just the, the anabolic response that would happen as a result of that. Okay, so the fourth tier least important thing is where you put your carbohydrate. This actually would be a first tier importance thing if we're talking about endurance training, okay? Um, but I am going to assume that we're talking about resistance training where the training bouts are significantly uh, less than two hours at a pop, okay? The placement of your carbohydrate. Mm. Gosh, it is really going to depend on the nature of the training bout because you're really looking at a performance issue here. Uh, for most guys who train for an hour, really it doesn't freaking matter where you place your carbohydrate. It doesn't matter. Um, for guys who are training towards two hours and it's exhaustive and it's continuous, then it might benefit you to not train in a carb-fasted state. It might benefit you to place at least 20 to 40 grams of carbohydrates in the pre or during training period, at least. But once again, we're looking at guys who are indeed pounding away for a couple hours straight on, on a single body part where glycogen depletion will potentially become an issue towards the end of the, the training bout. And that's a very rare scenario. So uh, for that final fourth tier importance thing, I'm really talking about a fringe population. So yeah, in, in my effort to simplify things, I ended up complicating it. So I hope um, you like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's uh, the period of time between my intro work at BCAs and my post work at hydrolyzed protein? Uh, 27.54 seconds. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that, that's the answer I was looking for. That's all I'm going to take it from what you said. Just that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, man, of course. Now, that was a joke for anybody listening. Um, so yeah, it, it really does just come down to just be consistent with multiple protein feedings across the day. Try and spread it out evenly. Um, I think I read uh, on your blog or somewhere before um, an insurance policy kind of have equal amounts of protein one to two hours before, one to two hours after. It's not that difficult. So personally, I haven't had a protein shake after my training in couple of years um, mm -hmm. because I like to eat whole meal, whole foods um, have a big appetite and just prefer to eat rather than drink, like I said. Um, so, you know, just nothing too you know, particular or precise. It's not good. Even if you try and micromanage that stuff, it's not going to make any difference other than you just stressing yourself out and potentially raising cortisol and then actually being less anabolic. Yes. Um, <laughs> but <that's, laughs> but but yeah so so that's pretty much it there's not really much more to it than just kind of just eat like a normal human being and sandwich your workouts with some form of protein and potentially carbohydrates if you want to if you want to maximize anything like that but focusing on specifics of amino acids or a certain type of carbohydrates or getting in your carbs in within a certain window um, you know, as long as that window is probably, you know, one to two hours post-workout. Um, and, and even at that case, it may not be, be have much more beneficial effects, but for those who want to, it's probably, yeah. you know, the best idea to 
do you have any anything else or do you think that there's any any further research that would be worth looking into or that may you know give us more insights that may or may not be down the road that you know potentially could ch- uh, change this train of thought or you know, some something that we change or do you think that this kind of whole peri-workout nutrition for specifically resistance training i know that endurance training is a little bit different um mm-hmm. But for this specific endurance training, or sorry, um, resistance training, so basically bodybuilding or weightlifting, you think that we've pretty much covered off all the research or that something down the road may lead to new insights that may change the way that people um, consume food around the workout? I would like to see pairs <clears throat> a combination of, uh, of carbohydrate and protein pre-exercise with uh, just protein by itself, maybe in a morning fasted state, and how that might affect the resistance training performance um, after you standardize the the, uh, the evening meal before testing. Mm. So <clears throat> there, there is some gray area there about um, how carbohydrate might impact resistance training performance in, in people who do it exhaustively. Um, but that's, that's a real and, and true nitpick because with research, the questions that we look at don't necessarily involve advanced athletes. Yeah. So, um, there is a time where I insisted that people would have protein and carbohydrates pre-workout as well as post-workout. And so it was kind of this, this, uh, this thing where you're kind of pulling out all the stops for performance as well as anabolism as well as anti-catabolism. But then as the march of research went on, it became apparent that the placement of carbohydrate was uh, much less important and sometimes not important at all for the adaptations that we were examining. But when it comes down to it, there really isn't enough research on high level, high level bodybuilders, high level athletes in, in the resistance training realm who might benefit from, from carbohydrate intra-workout or pre-workout and, and that sort of thing. So it would be interesting to see that. I, I just don't necessarily see the meaningful benefit in that scenario of somebody, for example, had a high carb meal for dinner. You know, you're yeah. still gonna be restocked with glycogen um, by the time you start your training job. Um, so so yeah, that, that's a real nitpick, man. Um, I, I personally, feeding frequency through the day and because for a lot of people it might be a lot more convenient to consume their protein in two meals versus let's say four meals or more um some people just have that kind of lifestyle where it's just highly inconvenient to eat (laughs) um multiple frequent frequent small smaller meals a day and so like in scenarios where somebody has a preference to consume their their protein intake over two meals and let's say uh somebody's got Let's take this this wild scenario where somebody consuming 200 grams of protein and they would love to do it in, in two meals with 100 grams of protein each. That, I think that would be very interesting to compare that with somebody eating four meals of 50 grams of protein each and then carry that experiment out for a number of weeks with a resistance training protocol and trained athletes because we have all, still have a lot of assumptions um, a lot of speculation about what might optimize protein distribution for muscle growth. And we just don't have the longer term data 
we have the short-term muscle protein synthesis data showing that four, four feedings is superior to two feedings uh, or eight feedings, in fact. But there's a lot of limitations with that data. But the, what we have to do is work with the evidence we've got and um, implement it in practice and just observe and see, and see what happens. And, and in my observations, guys eating one or, one or two times a day are not making the kind of gains as guys with uh, four to six protein feedings a day. So, and then there's practicality limits with, with either end like that. And, and when we're talking about the general population of guys who just kind of want to, you know, they're reading men's health and they want to look semi-decent uh, by the pool or at the beach, a lot of the stuff doesn't matter to them one way or another. Yeah. So, and yeah, there's, there's, there's room in the research, man. There's always room in the research to, to make, make strides. And um, it's good that there are guys like yourself who are in the trenches and doing, doing the, the work, uh, competing even, you know, God bless you. <laughs> uh, and your feedback it, and your hypotheses are, are really what's going to fuel the work of uh, researchers, mm. including guys like, like myself who yeah. um, are putting the papers together. So yeah. um, it's, it's, a, it's a journey. It's a march. Yeah, so and and it really does like just come down to like overall adherence. So even though I know that sometimes I should eat four proteins or five protein sittings per day or feedings per day, some days I only eat three or maybe I will go down to two. Not that often, but in the depths of a calorie deficit, it's simply just to be able to not be starving. That I'll eat three feedings rather than five because I want to adhere to the to the plan of the actual, you know, keep the goal of the goal and lose body fat. And if I spread it out across five, the chances of me, let's say, binging or overeating um, because of that hunger or not sleeping well are just higher. So again, coming back to adherence, and that, that might mean somebody who works a lot of hours in the day or they don't get breaks from work and they can only eat three times a day or potentially even two times per day. Um, it's much better off that they focus on the overall intake rather than being trying to be so precise, getting caught up in it, and then not being able to do that. So they just end up not doing anything at all, where they're just going back to eating like they were before and maybe not focusing on the big picture, which is just getting in that overall nutrition. So I think yeah. that's from a practical application for the, the average guy who's not you know a, a pro bodybuilder or somebody who's... Yeah. You know, just so uh, tunnel, uh, you know, tunnel visioned that focusing on the big picture, even if that only means getting two meals a day, is more important than getting, you know, six meals, but only getting in six meals a couple times a week and then, you know, fucking up for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah, I agree, dude. I, I agree, and and I would even say, I wouldn't say that it, it is a really stra uh, that the gray area, and in, in my mind is does four protein feedings a day, will it really give a more meaningful uh, uh, growth response than three meals a day? I don't know. It's tough to place bets on that. You know, it's, it, it, it's tough to know that that's a gray area, but the practical differences and the difference in, in convenience and adherence between three feedings a day versus four can be pretty huge for some people. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I definitely see the practical limits with that, that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, that's a great uh, to finish on the whole kind of conversation that we've had. We've gone really in depth into everything 
and really come out the other side with uh, the conclusion that nothing really matters at all. <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> nothing matters, just eat whatever. No, yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's what some people might get. That's what some people yeah. might get. But just to rewind back where I talk about the tiers of importance. Yeah, and yeah. Sure yeah. On that. Exactly. So we, we just to, to give a summary of everything that you've said, if you want to absolutely optimize everything, four to six feedings of protein per day, um, if you're going to train in the morning, it's probably a better idea to have some form of protein either pre-workout, intra-workout, um, and then post-workout as well. But post-workout meal becomes more important um, if you haven't eaten before. Um, for somebody who really wants to get into the nitty-gritty, in good insurance policy would be to have some form of carbohydrates and protein within one to two hours before they work out and one to two hours afterwards. Pretty much after that, it's not really going to make much of a difference um, at all. And coming back to it, adherence is going to be the biggest factor um, at, for the whole thing. You know, just making sure that you are getting in your overall calories and protein for the day, and then everything else comes secondary to that. And focusing on you know amino acids or branch chain amino acids really have neg negligible to no effects at all and you're just kind of pissing your money away absolutely yeah you, you're almost better off just having carbs instead of the the, yeah. the amino acid supplements because at least you'll be able to put the carbs toward uh towards performance more yeah. more than the you know than the extra protein or extra amino acids which you're you know i'm not going to work as well for that purpose Hmm. well it was great to have you on man today uh really really appreciate really enjoyed the conversation and uh, it's great to see you back posting so where can people find more information about you i, I mentioned your alan aragon research review which is an amazing source for information especially for people who are maybe not so uh, science-minded or don't have the kind of capabilities of reading research themselves or are just kind of lazy and don't want to read the research themselves but it's great for the, the average person who wants to learn more about the science behind nutrition, but maybe doesn't have the time or skill to get into the in-depth stuff. And that's what I found like 10 years ago, almost since I've signed up. And it's, it's something that I, I visit frequently. So you can find you there. Where else can people find you? Gosh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm, by the way, it's really incredibly flattering and gratifying to hear that you have been subscribed to my research review for like 10 years uh and you, you are obviously a smart guy and a, an accomplished guy and you are in the trenches and doing it and, and you're putting all the pieces together so that is tremendous for me to know that somebody like yourself at your level is benefiting from my research review and that's the whole purpose of why i decided to do it i wanted to help athletes i wanted to help recreational athletes I wanted to help weekend warriors with it when I started my research review in 2008. And so, so yeah, yeah, you can, as you know, you can subscribe to my research review. Just go to alanaragon.com and it's easy to navigate to, to find yourself in the, the research review zone. Um, so that's the, the first place that I would direct listeners is to alanaragon.com. If you want to nitpicky alanaragon.com slash a-a-r-r stands for alan aragon's research review um and you get immediate access to the entire 11 year archive and it's 10 bucks a month it's it's literally the uh, all the research reviews after me just tried you know they try to 
kind of step it up and one up, make it bigger and longer and this and that. And so they naturally make it more, much more the expensive. Time. They make it much more expensive. Um, and they're all, they're all good. They're all done by my, my basically people who follow my work. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a little something that I feel I bring that's different. It's my own personality, my own, uh, uh, my own proclivities and idiosyncrasies and, and, and nuances of judgment, things like that, that you're obviously, you're not going to get from other research reviews. <laughs> um, so, uh, you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram username is the Alan Aragon the Alan Aragon. And it's not because I, I'm in love with myself or have that big of an ego. It's because somebody else took Alan Aragon. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that that's, that's, those are the two main places you can find me. So that is it for the first episode of the Health Mastery Show. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a review or some feedback on whatever platform you're on, whether that be YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, because those ratings, likes, and reviews do help massively with the algorithms and helping me get better guests on the show. If you do have any other feedback or would like to see any other future guests or topics talked about, please do email me. My email is in the show notes as well as all the timestamps for this podcast and future podcasts going forward will be the same. But I'm more than happy to just talk about topics that people want to hear about. It's all going to be around the same kind of philosophy that I talked about at the beginning taking the principles of natural bodybuilding and applying them to your life. So in future, we will have more topics on nutrition and training, but not necessarily just those topics. Again, it's just like topics that I would like to listen to. So all things about personal development with that idea or overarching team of natural bodybuilding principles and stoicism and applying that to all areas of life. So I hope you enjoyed the show and I look forward to chatting to you in the next one.